My name is Joe. I'm an alcoholic. Good to be here. I'm glad he couldn't do me justice. I'm not here for that. I remember going to my sponsor one time when I was new. And I said something about something either really bad or something really good has happened and it really doesn't matter when you're new. But um, I said to Don, I said, uh, you know, I really don't feel like I deserve it. And he goes, thank God. He said, if everyone in Alcoholics Anonymous got what they deserved, we'd be sitting in empty rooms with Alcoholics Anonymous. And maybe this isn't about justice. Maybe this is about grace and mercy. That's what I see. And that's what I can give them. No more, no less. I want to thank the committee for inviting me. Uh, you can tell that he thinks I'm a nice guy because he's only known me for about a half an hour. There's no one that's ever known me for more than a half an hour that thinks that. It's always an honor and a privilege to be asked to share an alcoholic anonymous. You, you all use a really strange word for this. Give a lead. It's always an honor and a privilege to give a lead in alcoholic anonymous. Especially in a town where there's alcoholic highways. I never, I knew about alcoholic driving, but I never knew about alcoholic highways where you have to go from Ohio to Kentucky, back through Ohio to get to Kentucky. To me, to me, that makes a lot of sense. Um, that's a scary thing, though, isn't it? Mm. That's why I'm here tonight, because that makes sense. Um, none of AA makes much sense anymore. But going from Ohio to Kentucky to Ohio back to Kentucky makes sense. You might have alcoholic highways, but you are smart when putting on a convention. You pick a obsessive compulsive co-chairman. I tell you, Liz, Jenny, uh, and Liz did their phone call to California, and they just asked me a couple months ago. I can imagine Ken and 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 Liz. They've probably been calling on a regular basis for the last six months. She called, she called Thursday morning just to tell me, give me a weather report. That's how many phone calls my, my best friend Liz and I have had over the past two months. <laughs> oh, dear. It's always great to have all not involved in the conference. You have to watch out for You have to be very careful. There's a lady, uh, Alan on Dolphin. And, um, she has an alcoholic husband. And she's out on the course one day and she doesn't, she slices her. Oh, and one guy even called me to ask me to play golf. Um, this morning. He, he called me a week ago. And, and I thought nobody who would play golf in California would come to play golf in Cincinnati, Ohio. And having grown up not too far from here. I grew up in Battle Creek, Michigan, right up the road. 
So there's this uh, tricky Al-Anon golfer out on the course one day, and she slices her ball into the woods and goes over to find her ball, and she's looking around in the woods, and out pops this uh, leprechaun from behind the tree, and he goes, today's your lucky day. She says, why is that? And he says, well, you get three wishes. She says, great. He says, but there's one catch. Your husband gets ten times the amount of everything you get. She says, fine. He says, well, what's your first wish? He says, that every shot I ever make on any golf course anywhere is perfect. He said, Granny, but your husband will be ten times better. She says, fine, no problem. He says, well, what's your second wish? He says, I'd like a million dollars in cash. He says, Granny, but you know, your husband will get ten million. She says, no problem. He says, well, what's your third wish? He says, I'd like to have just a little teeny heart attack. <laughs> You gotta be careful. You gotta be careful for what they wish for. Man. You just might get it. Oh. What else did I want to mention? I met a girl named George. That was strange. I was told from the very beginning in Alcoholics Anonymous to look for the miracles and real simple things. When I was new, I had this idea that um, it would be burning bushes and blinding flashes and clouds opening up and the hand of God reaching down. And uh, I was taught from the very beginning to look for it in small, to look for the hand of God in my life in small ways. And they turned out not to be small. I think the, the only way one can realize a miracle in their life is to have experience the first step. Because if one believes that they've made these great things happen, if I could say to you that these things I'm going to share with you I've made happen and I've done it out of my own power, God's just kind of a buddy that's been my friend and that I don't really need power, then I probably would have never experienced a miracle in my survival because I'd still be taking the credit. But I believe when one experiences that depth in the innermost self, the first step in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and the realization of that truth, you can begin to realize the miracles in your life. I mean, I was amazed at 30 days. I had never had 30 days for 17 years. From my first drink to my last drink, I can never, I cannot tell you about ever having 30 days, and I went to treatment 10 times, and I was locked up in the Michigan State Penitentiary for a year and a half, and I've been to seven colleges to get one degree, and I've worked in therapy drinking with the director of the program that I worked for, and uh, I cannot tell you about any more than ever having 30 days once or twice. So at 30 days, I was pretty amazed. And I was pretty amazed to be invited home for Christmas my first year of sobriety because I had not been invited home for Christmas for a long time. And I think sometimes those of us that have been around for a little while and those of you that have been around a lot longer than I have, I think sometimes we forget that it's really relative to where you come from. A guy like me who hadn't worked for seven or eight years to be given a job in my first year is a director of a prevention program for the National Council on Alcohol, that was a big thing. 
I heard a story about that once, how it's really, really relative to where you come from, about this guy growing up in New York City, drinking, drinking for a long time, and one day he's sitting on a stoop of a brownstone apartment, and a man walks up to him and says a certain thing to him about his father, and the kid killed him, just killed him, just killed him. And 20 years later, he finds himself in Alcoholics Anonymous, and he's over by the coffee pot one night, and Two ladies on the other side of the room are watching this kid. A man walks up to this kid at the coffee pot and says a certain thing to him about his father. Now, one of these ladies knew him from New York when he was drinking, and one of the ladies knew him from AA when she came in. And this man walks up to him at the coffee pot and says a certain thing to him about his father. And the kid raises his voice a little bit and gives him a little push. And one lady goes, how could anybody treat someone like that in alcoholics anonymous? How could anybody do that? The other lady goes, boy, he's come a long way. <laughs> and I forget sometimes. I forget sometimes what it was like. Now, I do not think remembering what it was like is what keeps me here. I hear sometimes if you can't remember your last drunk, you probably haven't had it. There's a couple guys in our group that can't remember the last three months. They must be really in trouble. But I do believe it's important to be reminded where you come from. And, uh, I come from a place where being invited home for Christmas, my first Christmas sober, four months sober, was a big deal. Being invited home 11 more Christmases in a row was a big deal. Coming into a city somewhere in the United States, like Cincinnati, and having friends that I care about and that care about me is a miracle. Because 11 years ago, there was no one in this country except one guy that wanted me anywhere near them. And I was not being invited home for Christmas, and I had not worked in a long time. And I didn't have friends inviting me places more than once. I think it's amazing in AA sometimes some of you won't understand this yet, but I think it's amazing sometimes that I actually get invited back to the same place more than once in Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I was told to uh, behave myself uh, this weekend um, by a guy who can't keep himself sober or manage his own life, so, you know, it doesn't really mean much. He's just my son. Now, that doesn't make much sense to me. None of this stuff after a period of time, and I haven't been here as long as some of you, makes much sense to me anymore. I mean, it's just not logical. It's all, I think the entire program of Alcoholics Anonymous is a paradox. And see, that lets several of us, most of us, off the hook. It lets those of us that come here with not much sense off the hook because you don't have to learn or get smarter to figure out the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it also lets those of us off the hook that come here with a little too much sense off the hook because it ain't something you can figure out in a couple of years and leave a group off to somewhere and be just fine. This doesn't make this stuff that doesn't make sense. I mean, it doesn't make sense to a rational mind that if you want to find a place, a way to stay sober, that you would go to a bunch of people whose whole program begins by admitting they can't keep themselves sober. I mean, you think you should go to somebody who knows about how you can keep yourself sober to find out how to stay sober. That's not the way it happens. 
the idea that if you admit you have no power, you receive more power than you've ever been given. But as long as you think you have any at all, you never get any more than you already have, which is little or nothing at all. <laughs> that doesn't compute up here, thank God. But you begin to listen. You begin to listen with a different organ in Alcoholics Anonymous. Not that organ. There's always one. Another organ begins to open up. It's been closed and shut off and locked up for a long time that understands those things. I've often imagined taking a brand new guy just off the end of a 15, 20 year drunk. Never been to a meeting yet where we screwed him up at all. You put him in a room. Tell him all the paradoxes of alcoholics and He'd probably run out of there and think we were some of the craziest people in the world. I remember when I was new, and you'd hear one guy in the corner say, let go. Another guy would say, hang on. Another guy would say, quit trying so damn hard. Another guy would say, try a little harder. The one that really got me was, don't make any judgments, but stick with the women. How do you do that? How do you do that? Or you tell the guy, if you decide to turn your will in your life, or, or, you, or you tell him, don't make any major decisions in your first year, and then six months later you say, now we want you to decide to turn your entire will in life over to Sarah's God. No major decision there. My one buddy told me once, we tell new people, don't get in a relationship for a year, but nobody knows if that works or not, because nobody's ever done it. Right? <laughs> None of it makes any sense. Decide to turn your will and your life over to the care of God. Take the action necessary to do that. You get a new life and a will that you can begin to use properly. Doesn't make any sense to me that to admit that I have no power, I will receive more than I've ever been given. But as long as I thought I had any at all, I never got any more than I already had. That doesn't make any sense to me. But I know this. From the day I heard a man in Alcoholics Anonymous tell my story, and I believe the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous happened. You see, I believe if, you, if all you need are people that have the same problem, the county jail would have worked for a lot of us a long time ago. But I believe the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous happened for me when I met a man where in my gut I felt he was exactly like me, but wasn't anymore and had been changed. Because they paraded people by me all the time that had the same problem I did, but they never had a solution. And they paraded people by me all the time in these places where I was who had a solution, but the first thing I'd say to myself is he's not like me. But the day I met a man who was not only like me, but had been changed and had a solution to offer me in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous more than just not drinking. So I said the other day, if you drink, you'll die. That doesn't scare me. Because if I keep feeling the way I, I'm feeling, I don't want to live in alcoholic anonymous. And no one ever talked to me about a part of disease I didn't even know I had. That doesn't make any sense. No one ever talked to me about a part of the disease of alcoholism that I didn't even know I had, and I didn't even know that the root of alcoholism gets worse after you stop drinking. Because I had this idea from 10 treatment centers and a, a degree in psychology. I met my sponsor. I told him a little bit about my history. He shook his head. He said, you know enough to be dangerous to yourself and everybody around you. 
those cute little things that sponsored things. Yeah. Thank God for the people in Alcoholics Anonymous that care more about me than how the hell I feel about what they have to say. Who are willing to risk my sensitive alcoholic feelings and hold up the mirror of truth based on their own experience that does not always feel good. I've had several people come up to me after giving a talker, and I've done it myself to people that didn't necessarily make me feel good. I didn't feel good about what you had to say. Too bad. <laughs> movement. Movement to be really moved by something. In heart. It doesn't always feel good because it might sound a lot of things you believe about the program that you maybe haven't even been in. That's what they did to me. At five and a half months, I sat down with a man and all he talked to me about for the entire day was the circle and the triangle of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and several lies that I believed to be true was smashed that day. I went to him one time, I sat down, I feel terribly inferior and insecure. His eyes got really big, he said, you want to know why? Now that's one of those things you have to watch out for when you're new because sponsors have a whole other lingo that we don't understand when we're new. Like when they say, we need to talk. If you're new and your sponsor says, we need to talk, it doesn't mean we need to talk. It's a whole other language. It means you need to shut up and sit down and listen. There's certain things they say you got to watch out for. Like, do you really want to know why you feel inferior and insecure? When your sponsor says, do you really want to know why? If you have any sense at all, you might want to think for a minute before you say, yeah, I really want to know why, but I was new. I didn't know. I didn't know. I said, yeah, I've been looking for the answer to that for 12 years in therapy. He said, do you really want to know why you feel inferior and insecure? I said, yeah. He said, because you're inferior and insecure. <laughs> That's far too simple for a complicated guy like me. And there was no one to do. And that's an amazing thing to get free of in alcohol. Liz and I were talking about it today. I think our parents get more blame than, than any group of people in alcoholics know. Why don't we ever give credit to the parents who help us turn out the way we are? You never hear in a meeting, I'm really pissed because my parents helped me turn out to be a pretty healthy, well-adjusted person. I was going to tell Denny a story about a guy who got called one time to speak, and all they had was a tape of him. They didn't know the tape was about eight years old, and they called this guy, and he seemed a little surprised, but said, sure, I'll come. And he got there, he told the people, he said, well, I really haven't been involved in Alcoholics Anonymous for about eight years, but what I'd like to talk about tonight are the psychological ramifications of church and state or something. Is that be good? Nine months ago, I might have been a nice guy. I said to Don once, I'm terribly afraid of my own mind. He said, you have a good reason. I sat in a meeting one time. I was doing the AA shuffle, and I didn't know what the AA shuffle was. Maybe someone in this room relates. Maybe somebody doesn't. The AA shuffle was, I turned it over, and I took it back. And I turned it over and I took it back. And this old guy who didn't care about how I felt, cared more about me than how I felt, he said, if you're still doing that, you haven't turned it over. Why don't you shut up and sit down? 
And I drank enough alcohol to shut up and sit down. I love people when they say, God brought me to the rooms of alcoholics anonymous. Right, I was just a healthy, well-adjusted guy walking down the street one day, and God said, go to Alcoholics Anonymous. I think alcohol had a little bit to do with bringing me to Alcoholics Anonymous and beating me to a state of reasonableness. How about this one? If it's God's will, it feels good. <laughs> Anyone who ever says that's never written inventory or made amends. I spent 17 years doing some stuff that felt really, really good, and I absolutely know it wasn't God's will. And I've done some stuff in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous that didn't feel real good. And I know it was God's will. Oh, how about this one? I know God's working in my life today because there was a parking place just for me outside of the meeting. Right. Then the day there's no parking space, you either go, see, God don't love you no more. Not only does my ego want to base the realization of the consciousness of the presence of God on circumstance and my emotional state, so my ego can trick me one day when I'm not feeling really good or things aren't going my way, to say, see, it doesn't work, you might as well go drink. My ego also wants me to base the problem in my first step with circumstance and emotional state, and I start to say things like, I'm an alcoholic because, and it's anything out here but me taking responsibility. Because I don't want to take responsibility. I do not want to admit, they're not kidding when they say, alcoholics do not like to admit that they are bodily and mentally different. Countless vain attempts prove that we're different. I want to say that I'm an alcoholic because I went to treatment ten times. Not true. I want to say I'm an alcoholic. I came to AA with my own excuses, just like I heard when I got here. Somebody said I'm an alcoholic because mommy and daddy are. Mine aren't. My head said maybe if they would have been, I would have learned my lesson and wouldn't have turned out the way I did. Somebody says I'm an alcoholic because I was deprived or depraved. I wasn't. I was given everything I ever wanted. But my ego said maybe if I would have been beat a little bit, I wouldn't have turned out the way I did. See, we hear a lot about the yes, but we don't ever hear about the we hear a lot about the yes, but we don't hear a lot about the if only. And I'm sitting there and I'm new and I got my little if only story going on in my head and it goes like this. If only daddy wouldn't have been fifty seven years old when I was born. And if only I hadn't gone to that school in the ninth grade. And if only I hadn't hung out with those guys, I wouldn't have turned out the way I did because my ego loves to keep the problem outside of me. And I'm sitting there in a meeting one day, and a guy tells my little if-only story, and he turned out just as sick as I did. And the lie got smoked. I could probably spend from now until the end of the weekend telling you and sharing with you the number of lies in my sobriety that I have believed were absolutely true, that I was facing my life on, that had to be smashed for me to get through. Lie after lie after lie after lie. What do you mean I played a part with every resentment I ever had? They're doing it to me. Like the guy who's been sober forever. God forbid he's on his deathbed. And his wife is right there in the hospital with him. He says, honey, after all these years, I finally found something out and I finally realized something. She says, what? She says, well, you know, you were right there that time I got shot and you stood by me. And you were right there. And you stood by me. And you were right there that time I lost all our money in business. And you were right there, and you stood by me. 
And you were right there that time I had a stroke and you stood by me. And he says, you've always been right there and you've always stood by me. And after all these years, I've realized something. He says, what's that? He says, you're a king. <laughs> That's the way I think. That's the way I think. So here I am in this meeting. This guy tells me if I'm still turning it over and taking it back, I haven't turned it over. And tells me to shut up and sit down. That didn't feel good. I said, I learned to ask the second greatest question I ever learned to ask in AA. I said, what do you mean? If you're new and you hear somebody, you want to really mess things up around here, you hear somebody throw out one of these cliches, like you're supposed to understand it. Go up to them after the meeting and say, what did you mean when you said, uh, you find out something real interesting about the whole thing? I'm not going to tell you what you're going to find out, but you're going to find out something really interesting. So I said to him, what do you mean? He said, there's a difference between a decision and a commitment. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, if you tell someone to go sit in the corner and pray for ham and eggs, and they decide to do that, and they go sit in the corner and pray for ham and eggs, and then just sit there, they'll probably starve to death. I said, what do you mean? He said, there's a difference between a decision at the third step and the commitment that follows. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, if you told someone to go sit in the corner and pray for ham and eggs, and they decided to do that, and they went over in the corner and prayed for ham and eggs, and then got up and made one hell of a commitment, and you showed them how to put one foot in front of the other. They'd probably eat ham and eggs. And I said, what do you mean? He said, there's a difference between a decision and a commitment. I said, what do you mean? He said, it's like a chicken and a pig walking down the road. They come to a big sign on this church that says, help feed the poor. The chicken looks at the pig because he's all pumped up with virtue because he likes to do nice things to people, and he says, you and I ought to do something about that hunger problem. The pig says, well, what could we do? The chicken says, we could feed those poor people ham and eggs. The pig had a little more sense than I did when I, when I took the third step, because he said to the chicken, for you that's just a simple decision, but for me that's one hell of a commitment. No, I didn't get it. I didn't get it. You know the difference between understanding something in your head and getting it, getting it in your heart? I think that's what this whole journey has been about for me. There's times when somebody will say something and it'll just go from here to here right away. There's even times where it happens in my heart before the understanding comes to my head. Those are few and far between. But sometimes it's a long road between my head and my heart. My sponsor's been saying something to me for 10 years, for 11 years. It took about five years to get from my head to my heart. And what that is, is that no one in these rooms is any closer to God than anybody else in these rooms. And nobody in these rooms is any closer to God than the last time they took a drink. The only thing that changes here is our awareness of a presence that's always been there. He hasn't gone anywhere. I didn't just that. But when that went from my head to my heart, I began to see you different. And I began to see me different. And I began to experience the presence of God different. I sat in a meeting one time at York Street, 1311 York Street in Denver, Colorado, where I got sober August 17, 1982. And I sat at that meeting one day, and I'd been going there for a long time. And whenever there was new people, they asked them to raise their hand. And everybody would clap. And the leader of the meeting would say, keep coming back. Now, I never saw a problem with that. And one little guy, one little time, changed my whole perception of that. His name was Charlie. And Charlie was always new. And everybody at the club knew Charlie. 
And one day a girl came from another club to chair the noon meeting. She didn't know Charlie, but she asked for new people. Three, four people raised their hands. And they introduced themselves and everybody clapped and she looked at Charlie and she said, Charlie, keep coming back. I didn't see anything wrong. Charlie raised his hand about two minutes ago and he said, can I say something? She said, yeah. He said, I'd like to say to you all in this room to not clap when I come back because I get more attention when I'm new than when I've stayed around for a while and quit telling me to keep coming back. That's my problem. I think I can. And my perception changed just a little bit. Just a little shift in my perception. And I think that's what really happens here because the world hasn't changed because I got sober, but I was mad at everything and everyone in the world. Another time I was engaged to be married a couple of years ago to um, God's will. And um, it's amazing. Everywhere I go, there's people that know her. <laughs> I was engaged to be married, and um, she left me. And for a couple of days, I went around the meetings, and I was just milking the heck out of her. She left me. friend of mine comes up to me who cares more about me than how I feel about what he has to say, and he says, why don't you go home and write inventory about her leaving you? Because I'm telling you, if you would have asked me that day or that week, if you would have asked me, Joe, how come you're in pain? How come you're hurting? With every bit of honesty I had in my body, I would have told you, I'm hurting because she left me. That's the truth. That's the truth. That's the truth that I would rather die than see anything other than. That's the truth that I would rather hold on to than get free. He says, why don't you go home and write inventory about her leaving you? And I had one of those lapses of memory, and I forgot how tricky the inventory process in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous is, because they asked me to put down in the first two parts of that inventory who and why I was mad. And I put down what I thought was the truth. Who am I mad at? Her. We have a different way of saying it in our group, but I won't say that tonight. I put her name on this piece of paper. She just said, put down who you're mad at. And then it said, put down why. So I put that she left me. Then I was given the grace of God to see where six or seven different areas of self were hurt or threatened or interfered with when she left me. And why? To see, when she left me, I hurt my self-esteem. Not because I have low self-esteem. One of the biggest lies in Alcoholics Anonymous sold to us by our friends when it has to do with anger is that we get mad because we have low self-esteem. When I get mad, it's not because I have low self-esteem and off the end of my pen comes, I'm above being left by anybody no matter what I do. I don't have low self-esteem. I have just a little too much self-esteem. And my perception changed. You mean I'm not the worst boyfriend in the entire world? You mean I'm not a rotten teacher, you know what? Nor am I the ultimate boyfriend who's above being left by anybody. And the lie gets mad. And you know, when she left me, it hurt my sex Obviously. It was just me and my best friend left. At least that's with someone that I love. A little too much. Right? <clears throat> and off the end of my pen comes, women don't leave men. 
Women don't leave real men. Women don't leave the ultimate boyfriend. And I move through that and I see the lies. And I'm not finding any truth. I'm finding the lies that my ego tells me is true. That little voice, sometimes it's not quiet. Sometimes there's several of them. Sometimes the other ones don't even know which one's running the show that day. I think uh, schizophrenics have it easy in alcoholics now. They only got two. For me, that was relief. I had this whole committee of voices. I got the lover, I got the fighter, I've got the intellect, I've got the sweet, nice guy, I've got the student, I've got Mr. AA, I've got the ultimate boyfriend, I've got... And they all change seats to be the leader of the meeting each day. You never know which one you're going to wake up to. I wake up one morning, it's the worker, he's in charge. Next day, it's the, lo- it's the, it's the lazy slob. Yeah? Then, I'm given the grace to see where my selfishness and how I did it with her. That's just a little check. How I did it with her, to admit to you, honestly, and to myself, and to God, how my selfishness and dishonesty and self-seeking and fear drove her away, and what I thought was the absolute truth turned into an absolute lie, and what I thought was an absolute lie that I had anything to do with it turned into the truth. And my perception changes. And you know what? He didn't have to come back or get well or see the light or do anything for me to get free. All I had to do was take some real illogical action way over here that doesn't seem to have anything to do with what's way over here, and I got to get free. I had to go admit it to a guy who can't manage his own life or keep himself sober that I shouldn't really even trust. Ask a God that I'm not really sure about whether he can do anything with this to remove it. And then sit at my home group as I became Mr. Pius and say, I'm praying for the willingness to make amends to him. And in my home group, I know it's a radical conception, but in my home group we're allowed to ask each other questions during the meeting. I know that's strange. We talk to each other before the meeting, during the meeting, and after the meeting. And this little guy, little black script, ex-gang member, raises his hand and he says, is it possible? And in my home group, that's one of those buzz, that's one of those phrases you have to watch out for when they start a question with, is it possible? And I go, I brace myself. He goes, is it possible? You're not praying for the willingness to make amends and you'll know the exact moment you are. I wanted to say, you little so-and-so, how dare you speak to me that way after all I gave you. But in my pious way, I said, well, that's possible. How will I know the exact moment I'm willing to make that amend? He said, yeah, you'll hear some really strange noises. And I said, what? Are you absolutely crazy? He said, yeah, the exact moment you're willing to make that amend, you'll hear a really strange noise. I said, like what? He said, like this. You people in the room have made a noise. He said, yeah, you'll hear you knocking on her door. A couple days later, I heard a really strange noise. Then I heard another really strange noise. Out of my mouth came, I need to talk to you about the harm I caused you. About 20 minutes later, I heard another really strange noise. 
Do you need to tell me how it is this hurting you? About three hours later, I heard another really strange noise come out of my mouth. I asked her what I could do to make it right. And I didn't apologize. And I didn't say I was sorry. But you know what? I was sorry for a long time. The first amends I ever made was for my brother. And I went and I said I was, this was before I got to amends with my sponsor. I was making amends to feel better. I forgot that I drink whether I feel better or worse or not much at all. And I ran to my brother because he lived near Denver and I said, I'm here to make amends. I want to tell you I'm sorry for everything I've ever done to you. He said, I know you are. What are you going to do? I later had to go back and make amends for making amends. I used to have this great attachment to my drunk law. And I love drunk law. I love drunk laws as much as anybody else. Except the ones that know what it was like, what it was like, what it was like, what it was like. But I'm so excited about what happened because what happened is the only reason that it's not still what it was like. And because of what happened, it's the only reason it's what it's like it is today. That's what I'm excited about. I'm excited to tell alcoholics People did it to me. People did it to me. And they didn't care how I felt about it. And they loved me. And they hugged me. They told me the truth. They didn't tell me everything I could do to keep myself sober. They told me if I was left to myself on my own devices and then on my own power, I would probably drink again. And encouraged me to quit worshiping the fingers in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, the thing on the Sistine Chapel, the finger that points to God in the church, they tell you, don't worship the finger, worship what it points to, don't worship the church. Well, in Alcoholics Anonymous, they told me when I was new, go to meetings, get a sponsor, read the book, and work the steps. My keen alcoholic mind thought, those are the things that will keep me sober. So I went to more than 90 meetings in 90 days, because if one meeting a day is good, three, so that's just my philosophy. Several are better, right? And I started reading the book, and I thought I had a sponsor, and I thought I was working the show. And in those 90 days, I saw people who went to more meetings than me drink. And I saw people who knew the book by heart, although it wasn't by heart, it was in their head. They just memorized. And I saw people who spent more time with their sponsor than they drink. And I've seen some people work the steps and forget a few simple things like they're not the ones keeping themselves sober drink. And I met this man at five and a half months who I'd heard in my very first meeting who told my story, but I knew he wasn't like me anymore. And I went to him dying of a part of the disease I didn't even know I had, dying of untreated alcoholism, dying of a spiritual malady, whatever you want to call it. They had talked to me for years in treatment centers about the body and the mind. Keep it in big words. Keep it way up here so you don't... I used to give lectures on THIQ and neurotransmitters and chemical enzyme reactions in the body of an alcoholic and didn't have a clue that I was powerless over alcohol. But when somebody sat with me one night and screwed up my drunk a lot... Now, I know there's people in the room that can relate to drinking with a head full of AA and we screw up your drinking. But I wonder if anyone else in the room can relate to somebody sitting down with you in Alcoholics Anonymous and screwing up your drunk laws. And a man did that to me one night. 
in my first 90 days at 1311 North Street in Denver, Colorado. I came downstairs from a meeting. It looked kind of like Oak Street, big mansions. Came downstairs from me and there's this big scary guy over in the room. He's a lawyer and an ex herder, which is a dangerous combination. He said, come on over and have a cup of coffee. I didn't know. I didn't know this guy's reputation. I didn't know. I was new. I didn't know. I went over and I had a cup of coffee. He said, ask me a real interesting question. He said, why do you think you're alcoholic? Thank God he wasn't one of these people that believe if you're in the room, you're in the right place. Because you know what? I've helped some people in these rooms over the last few years find out they're not in the right place and they thank them. And I think it's a story that's not told enough in Alcoholics Anonymous because we don't let them tell it because they're not here anymore. And that's the people in AA that get free by finding out this is not where they belong. And I have a girlfriend right now, someone I love very much, someone I'd like to spend the rest of my life with, who after eight years in Alcoholics Anonymous came to our group and met a woman she wanted to work the steps with. They sat down and looked at the first step. She's not alcoholic and she's not good. And she's doing the steps based on her plan and not living alone. And I said, what, what do you mean, why do I think I'm alcoholic? I've been to treatment sometimes. He said, he said, he said, son, you know, there's people that go to treatment more than once that are, that can drink tremendous amounts of alcohol, that are, and get in trouble, that are about as much alcoholic as the man in the moon. He said, you know what? Some of us in these rooms have never been to treatment. What does that mean, you know? And I grabbed for something else out here, of course, I gotta keep it out here. I said, you know, alcohol put me in the Michigan State of Penitentiary when I was 19 years old. He said, wait just a second. That's another buzzword you have to watch out for when your sponsor says, wait just a second. That's as bad as we need to talk. He said, wait just a second. Why'd they put you in the Michigan State Penitentiary? I said, writing $25,000 worth of bad checks. He said, oh, writing bad checks puts you in the Michigan State Penitentiary. And he said, you know what? There's guys in the Michigan State Penitentiary right now who can drink tremendous amounts of alcohol and end up in the penitentiary that are about as much alcohol as the man in the moon. And he said, you know what? Some of us have never been to the penitentiary. What does that mean? We're not. And all of a sudden, I got it. I got what my ego was doing. My ego was using the things that separate me from you to tell you why I was one of you. And thank God that man, see, that's what my ego wants to this day. Now, I do not believe knowing that keeps it from happening. Nor do I believe I can conquer my own ego. If I could, I'd be doing a lot better after 11 years in alcoholic phenomenon. But, it is interesting to know that I have an ego whose sole purpose is to separate me from you in any way it can. Separate me from me and what I really am. And separate me from God just long enough to have me back on a bar stool messing over everybody in my life. And I have an ego that wants that. I have an ego from several inventories I've written that thinks it can go on if I die. By some of the behavior it convinced me into. You'll be just fine, Joe. We'll be just great. Go stick that gun in that guy's face. You'll just be, you'll be just fine. Yeah. Believe it. Believe the line. And thank God this man sat with me and he shared his experience, strength, and hope that we could look at a common problem rather than our common differences. And all he did, and I didn't know the book describes that guy that can drink tremendous amounts of alcohol, that's not alcoholic, who all he needs is, is a sufficient reason, he can make up his mind and never drink again. I didn't know the book described that guy. And I didn't know that the big book spends about the first 53 pages just to get across the few ideas that he was about to talk to me about. 
that join us together, every alcoholic in this room, whether you, I sat with a little lady in my living room about six months ago who's never been to the penitentiary, never went to jail, never went to treatment, never had a DUI, never lost a husband, and barely ever, ever left the house. And she and I talked about the same two things that this man talked to me about, and within 20 minutes, she and I both knew we were the same, because what he talked to me about was alcohol. And what he talked to me about was what happens when I start to drink it, and what happens every time I stop drinking. And all of a sudden, I started to get a little glimpse of the common problem that we share here in Alcoholics Anonymous and why I'm powerless over alcohol. I'm not powerless over alcohol because of where it took me. I'm not powerless over alcohol because I went to treatment ten times or ended up in a Michigan State Penitentiary. Some of you never did any of that and didn't end up where I did, and some of you ended up in a lot worse place than I ever did and were just as much out here as each other. What he talked to me about was a physical craving for alcohol it makes me different from normal drinkers. I have a body that doesn't do well with alcohol and a mind that makes me have to drink. Now, I'd like to say that I grabbed onto the program of Alcoholics Anonymous that night and I haven't looked back since. But I didn't. He scared me because it didn't feel good. And someone the next day in the meeting told me, hey, if you didn't make you feel good, just take what you want. Leave the rest behind and hang out with us who make you feel better. And for the next several months, I hung out with you guys that made me feel better until I didn't feel better and I was dying of a part of the disease I didn't even know I had. And thank God for a man that sat down with me and said, in all these places you've ever been, in all the things you've ever learned, has anyone ever talked to you about a malady of the spirit that no human power can relieve? This man said to me last weekend that we've had a retreat. And we had my great, great, my great grandson, Paul M. from Chicago, who's been doing this deal for 47 years, come out and spend a weekend with our group. And he said something that was so very simple. The man was so simple. But it was so powerful at the same time. He said, be friends with your friends. But know who your friends are. Because there are people that would love to sell us something that we can overcome. That human beings can overcome because they gotta charge money. And I used to work in that field. And I used to charge money and tell people what they could do to keep themselves sober and give them techniques to prevent their next relapse for a disease that no one human power can relieve. And the first step by, begins by admitting you can't prevent your next relapse. And I thought I was one of your friends. And I wasn't. I didn't know that. Because I thought I could keep myself sober. And so I looked at the truth of my life. The truth of my life is, every time I ever made up my mind to not drink, I drank. There's a message now in Alcoholics Anonymous that I believe to be very dangerous. And it concerns me because I care about Alcoholics Anonymous. Because I care about the guy who might begin to feel out of place in the very program that he belongs in, when we tell new people, we just don't drink no matter what. And those of us that know better leave something out when we say that. And we begin to slip into a form of denial that can be stronger than the denial of the disease that we came here with. Because I found it within myself when I was seven and a half years sober, and I don't think I'm any better or any more special than any alpha in this room. And I found it within myself, but I don't hear it talked about. A form of denial stronger than the denial I came here with. 
And I was writing inventory one day. Because I come from the school that believes you rework and rework the first nine steps on a regular basis. And I don't have to defend that and I don't have to justify that. I just absolutely love what happens when I do that. And I don't ever want to drink again. And doing that's the only thing that's ever kept me from drinking again. And that's, that's not enough of a reason I don't have to say anymore about that. But I was writing inventory one day. And off the end of my pen came something that had nothing to do with what I was writing about. Which happens sometimes when you write inventory. And what came off the end of my pen was a form of denial that I was well into at seven and a half years that I didn't even know I was into. And sometimes it comes out in me in a real sly, cunning, baffling, and powerful way. See, I believe if alcohol is cunning, baffling, and powerful, then God is more cunning, baffling, and powerful, or I would be drunk tonight. And I started to see this form of denial that comes out in me real subtle sometimes. Like in California, we get up to take a birthday cake, 5, 10, 15, 20 years old, or whatever it is, and some of you'll get up to take your cake, and someone in the back of the room will go, how did you do it? And it's real subtle. If you get up and you say, my name is Joe, and I'm an alcoholic, and that means I'm powerless over alcohol, and my life is unmanageable, and then you spend 15 or 20 minutes telling them how you keep yourself sober and manage your life. And sometimes it's not so subtle. Sometimes it's me at seven and a half years thinking that I deserve these words start to creep into my mind like now that I'm seven and a half years I have the right to or now that I'm seven and a half years I deserve and it's no longer about grace it's now something I've earned and that I deserve and I'm in the absolute denial of the grace of God taking the point for what I've been given. Thank God this isn't something that I've had to earn or deserve. Thank God for the people in Alcoholics Anonymous that told me it also isn't something you can learn. Far from being a heretic, I would like to say to you that I believe studying the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous is a waste of time unless it gets you excited about doing what's in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. My grand sponsor from Indianapolis told a story to me about that the last time I saw him. And he talked about this guy calling his sponsor and said, I read the book and I drank. He said, well, he said, yeah, I read the book and I drank. I can, I can recite how it works off the top of my head. And I drank. The sponsor gets set up there and that and he says, okay, go to the kitchen and get a cookbook. The guy puts the phone down, goes to the kitchen, gets the cookbook, comes back. He says, now turn to the page that says how to make a chocolate cake. He says, okay. Now He said, now read how to make a chocolate cake. He said, okay. Did you read it? He said, yeah. Now read it again. He said, okay, read it. Now memorize it. Now read it back to me. This is how you make a chocolate cake. He said, I read it. I read it. I read it. He said, now cut me a piece. And I got it. He went from here to here. He didn't even have to figure it out. I understood it experience. In my heart. That reason it happens between two alcoholics, one sharing with another. Sharing. Sharing control. Not knowledge. The greatest analogy I've ever heard about the difference between experience and knowledge is the story about two twin brothers growing up in Cincinnati, identical in every way, and they get to be about 14 years old, and one of them hears that it's really great to have an orgasm. 
friend of him told us. He goes home and tells his little 14-year-old brother, and they make a bet who can find out what it would be like to have one this human. One of them goes to the library, studies every book he can find, what it would be like to have an organ. Goes back to high school, graduates college, becomes a professor at Harvard University, teaches a course. He knows more about what it would be like to have an orgasm than anyone in the world could ever even know. The other brother takes two weeks, finds a little girl, she shows him how to have one. Who knows more about what it would be like to have one? And I also think that's probably why the big book of alcoholics and says the spiritual life is not a thing. You have to live it. It's only in your gut when you understand to say to another guy, if you admit you have no power at all, you'll receive more than you've ever been given. But as long as you think you have any at all, you'll never get any more than you already have. That can only come from an experience of one alcoholic talking to another. And only another alcoholic in this room would understand me absolutely thinking for at least a week, and that was a short one for me, that she left me. And finding out, she didn't leave me. Only another alcoholic would understand. And only another alcoholic would understand that if you're ever really given anything here, what you have to do with it right away, give it away. Because that just doesn't make sense in my life. So after this old guy hurt my feelings at that meeting and said I didn't know the difference between a decision and a commitment, at five and a half months I woke up one day and I was given the grace see the nature of my condition further away from my last drink than I'd ever been in 17 years and I was dying of a part of the disease I didn't even know I had and someone literally had to open this book and explain to me the spiritual malady the unmanageability or whatever you want to call it and boy did I relate I related to that case before I ever took a drink in the middle of page 52 in the chapter to the agnostics when they read to me that we're having trouble with personal relationships. We can't control our emotional nature. We're prey to misery and depression. We have this feeling of uselessness. And we're full of fear. We can't seem to be of real help to other people. And we're unhappy. But that's untreated alcoholism. I didn't want to believe him. And the next day I ran to the meeting and I thought I had found the key to sobriety that I was going to share with all you people. But three-fourths of the room said, no, that's not untreated alcoholism. That's the human condition. And that's just about the way it's going to be for you now that you're sober. But thank God for the other part of that room that said, you know, I haven't had to live that way for a long time. And I have weeks and months and days well, I don't feel that way anymore. And I can be in a relationship with people. And I can control my emotional nature. It's what 10 and 11 is all about. But I didn't have any power to move myself past where I was. And every time I've wanted to get free in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, as much as I just like saying this, three-fourths of the room says I can't. And thank God for the other fourth of you people that say go for it. Because in the middle of my first inventory, writing about a resentment toward a man that I hated since my earliest memory, a man who was 67 years old by the time that I was 10, and he wasn't there for the baseball game, and he wasn't there to teach me. 
And I'm writing about this man, and I'm getting to my part with every one of those resentments. And for the first time in 30 years, I'm starting to feel some forgiveness in my heart for the man that I resented since my earliest memory. Isn't that sad? Isn't that sad 12 years of therapy got me in touch with my earliest memory was resentment? And I'm starting to feel some forgiveness in my heart, and I run to the meeting at noon. And I said, I'm in inventory, and I'm writing about my father, and I'm beginning to feel some forgiveness in my heart for a man that I've hated since my earliest memory. Do you people think that I could make amends to a man who's been dead since I was 21? And three-fourths of you said, can't do that. Can't make amends to someone who's dead. You'll never be able to do that. And behind it, what they're saying is just like me. God isn't everything. And they're expressing their own agnosticism, like I do on a regular basis. But the other fourth of that room said, sure you can. We know your sponsor. You do what he says when you get to the ninth step, and you can get free. And then all I had to do was take some illogical action that made no sense about him getting free of, of feelings I had toward my father. What makes sense to me if you hated someone since your earliest memory, is to go back to that person and tell them how the hell you felt whenever it was they did what they did to you. And I never got to. I heard a guy say one time, my sponsor told me to make amends, is to go back to everyone that ever hurt me and tell them how I felt. And confront them in a healthy way about how I felt about what they did to me when they hurt me. And then you just have a whole other slew of amends that you already had when you started. So I take this illogical action of sharing it with a guy that I don't even trust who can't keep himself sober or manage his own life. Ask a God that I don't really even believe in yet to remove this stuff. Write a letter to him, just like I was face-to-face with him, and talk about what I did to hurt him. Now, how do you blame a five-year-old kid for, or a ten-year-old kid for resenting a man who's 67? You don't. But what you look at is what you did with it for the next 20 or 30 years. And I sat there this way and I talked to him about this. And I talked to him about how at 10 years old I was playing God because I knew better than God how old he should have been, how he should have been, how he should have been doing it, and what he should have been. I knew better than God. I remember a guy saying something to me once that didn't make me feel necessarily real good. He said, if you don't think you play God, just think of this. If you had something to do with your own creation, wouldn't you have done a better job? <laughs> That's like the one Gary told me at Breckenridge this summer. My grandfather. Now, when my grandfather says, I'd like to tell you a story, see, that, that's another one of the, when he says, I'd like to tell you a story, it doesn't mean I'd like to tell you a story. It means I'd like to hammer you over the head until you absolutely have to run out of this room. And what he said to me was that him and this guy named Charlie buy lottery tickets every week for years. Or maybe it was a guy named Ed. I don't know. This is it. We and this guy named Ed buy lottery tickets every week for years and years and years. He picks that up at work and they go buy lottery tickets every Wednesday. And one day he goes to pick up Ed at work to go buy some lottery tickets. Ed says, I'm not buying lottery tickets anymore. And Jerry says, why? Ed says, because I realize that all I really want is enough money so I don't need to trust God. And I go, what time is that meeting starting? And I go to his grave and I read that letter and I say a prayer and I walk out of that graveyard free of feelings that have never come back 
since the day I did it. And that's a big difference between relief. Hang on a chair, leave the group, feel a little better, see your dad, you can Share in a meeting ten times a week how you feel about your father, walk out of the meeting, feel better. The next time you see your father, the feelings are still there. There's a lot you can do in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous to get relief. And believe me, when you're new, relief is a big deal because you probably haven't had any for a long time. But I reached a point in Alcoholics Anonymous where I wanted what some of you were talking about when you said that it's possible to experience some real freedom. And I found out something about relief. It's always one thing. It's always temporary. And I wanted some freedom. Banging on chairs, crying and screaming, staring at meetings, did not treat my alcoholism. Meetings of alcoholics anonymous do not treat my alcoholism. They just postpone what's really there that needs to be treated, with no human power can relieve, and maybe you give me some hope. And maybe you hug me and love me enough and tell me the truth regardless of how I feel, until I begin to speak what really can hear me. My friend said once to me one time when I was 10 years sober, if you ever sense alcohol very far away, just look out of the corner of your eye real quick and you see it right there. And it's right there. And the only thing that can fit in that space is the power of God. Because I had this idea of 10 years, 50 people, and friends, and money, and position, and feeling good most of the time, stands between me and my next drink until I realized all those things have been there before and been eliminated in the split second. And that what stands between me and my next drink is the power of God that I found here in this program. And that I can take that anywhere. I remember another time I wanted to get free. I was a year and a half sober and I had done some work. And I was through my first set of amends, which is another myth in Alcoholics Anonymous I had to get free of. We forget sometimes that we're not necessarily somewhere that everybody here wants us to get free the way we want to get free. And I shared in that meeting that I was a year and a half sober and that I had woken up that meeting that morning and that I had an idea of going to Mexico by myself where there was no AA and spending three or four weeks alone with no return ticket. Now three-fourths of the room said, thinking, thinking, setting yourself up, you're going to drink. If you don't go to a meeting every day at our gas station to get filled up, you'll go crazy. The other fourth of the room said, why don't you call down and ask him about that and see what happens. You might find out something. That's another one of those things you have to be real careful of when they say, you might find out something real interesting. I called down. I said, I had a strange idea this morning. Because I've been doing a lot of traveling, but I always met with one of you, someone in the program. And I always got a hold of the program when I got there, and I still love to do that. I said, Don, I woke up this morning, I had this idea about going to Mexico by myself, and there's no AA in this town, and spending three or four weeks and not making my return plan, just having open tickets. He said, great, check it out, you might find out something you are in. You know what? On that beat, and I didn't find, it didn't go from here to here until seven months later. Isn't it interesting that it went from here to here, not alone at that beat. It went from here to here, at the International Con Convention of Alcoholics Anonymous, with 60,000 other alcoholics in, in um, Montreal in 1985. When I walked into a meeting, because I saw on the door a name that I didn't know, and it said Loners International, 
And I thought, who in the world are these people in there? And I went in there and I heard about 10 speakers talk about being in a ranger station for seven years alone with a big book. Or in a, um, on top of the Himalayan mountains, they get to come down once every six months from where they work to an AA meeting. And a guy in a log cabin for 17 years with him in a big book. And they talked about what Alcoholics Anonymous meant to them. And I realized how much I take you all for granted. Because they talked about AA being a relationship with God that can go anywhere in the world. And I realized what happened on that beach in Mexico. Because I came back in better shape than when I left. I think a couple more of the fingers that I've worked with and I got skipped away. And I think my relationship with AA started to go like Bill Wilkins described from need to want to love. Because when I realized I didn't need you to stay sober, I began to want to be here and then I began to love being here when I realized no human, bo- no human power can relieve what I suffer from. And when I realized that this book was not what was keeping me sober and I quit working in this book and the process contained in it and started to look where that process took me and really look at where it took me and these steps as I've worked it and a sponsor that I've worked it. My sponsor lives as far away from me as you can possibly go in the continental United States. I live in Los Angeles. He lives on the ocean in North Carolina. He's gone from a convict in the Colorado State Penitentiary to working for the Department of Corrections for the state of North Carolina. And I know how that happens. That happens by admitting you can't make it happen. Because as long as I thought I had any power at all, I never got any more than I already had. But from the day that I admitted I didn't have any power at all to keep myself sober, manage my life, or keep myself from drinking again, I haven't had a drink since. And I don't know how that happened. There's an overlooked part of the inventory in our big book at the end of the section inventory. It talks about choosing an ideal for the future. A chosen sex ideal for your future sex life to bring into relationships. And it even says that it's chosen, that I have a part in choosing that. And it even says that I can pray to God and ask help to mold that ideal for my future. In June of 1992, I went through the steps with a Native American man who's 23 years sober. And he really emphasized that part of the inventory. And he asked me to write it out. He chose an idea for the future. And I'd done it before. But I really prayed it. And um, I read that inventory to him, and I took that sex idea away, and I just set out to make these men. And I don't like to admit to you that at 10 years sober, when looking just at a pretty much a year period since I was nine, that I had 40 amends to make in my life after doing more with step 10 and 11 than I ever had in nine years of doing that. I don't like to admit that, but I did. And I made those amends, and I finished them in January. And about uh, six months later in July, I was getting ready to go away for a trip on the, in the summer. And a guy came over to my house, and we were talking about that part of the inventory and really looking at that chosen ideal for your future sex life in relationship. And I said, you know what? I haven't looked at it for a long time, but I have one over on my desk in the bottom of this pile of papers. And I hadn't read it since June 25, 1992. 
and it was in July 1993. And I went over and I pulled out that ideal and I read it to him, and every single thing that I had written had happened the month that I finished my last month in that piece of work. And what I had written about was that I would like, for the first time in my sobriety, I said to God that I'd like to spend the rest of my life with Him. And that I would like her to be someone who loves God and does this work as alcoholic phenomenon. But it's funny that I didn't put that she'd be alcoholic. And I met a woman who came to our group after eight years in AA who found out she's not alcoholic and she got through. And she described her experience finding out she's not. Sounds like me describing my experience finding out I am. Because they're both the same experience. They're an experience of finding out truth of the nature of what's really wrong with you and answering that question in the back of your mind that's been there since way before you ever took a drink when you're sitting in your parents' backyard and you're 10 years old and you're dreaming that a spaceship is going to land and a little green man is going to get out and he's going to say you really weren't born here on this planet. We brought you here as a teeny baby. This has just been a test because that's how I felt way before I ever took a drink. And I came to Alcoholics Anonymous with that question in the back of my mind, what's wrong with me? After 10 treatment centers and a degree in psychology and having been a therapist in a treatment center, drinking with the director of the program I worked for, still not clear, what's wrong with me? And I have met men and women in this program that have been in this program for a number of years and still, late at night, at 3 o'clock in the morning, and there's no one really to talk to about it because there is such a position in their group they wouldn't dare admit it. They're still wondering. Because I've had this time seven years sober and ten years sober. Or I'm laying there in the middle of the night and I'm wondering once again, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? I heard a guy put it one time better than I could ever put it. He said, did you ever reach a day in alcohol synonymous? Well, you couldn't pull off on purpose what you used to do by mistake. Man, you couldn't. You know that fabulous stuff that used to happen to some of us by mistake? Unbelievable relationships. Unbelievable piles of money and jobs and things and places and near-death experiences. And you come to Alcoholics Anonymous and you got a day in your life in AA, whether you've been here a few months or a few years or several, and you have one of those days where you can't muster up the power to pull that stuff off on, on purpose. It used to happen by mistake. And boy, did I understand her. And boy, did I understand her finding out what was really wrong with her after a lifetime and a long time in AA, wondering what's really wrong with her. I heard a story one time and it didn't make me feel good. And I had to look at why. And I had to take responsibility for myself for why it didn't make me feel good rather than blaming the person that said it who I thought didn't make me feel good. And what the story was, this man talked about taking a hundred of us from Alcoholics Anonymous and God forbid, putting us back in the bar. And he said, you know what you find? And I said, no. He said, you find about 20 or 30 belly up to the bar wallowing in their whiskey, crying in their beer complaining about the sad state of the nation because they don't know that there's anything more to find in alcohol and some of them would like it. He said, then you find about 20 or 30 come in the bar, sit at the tables in the middle of the room, drink till they feel good and then they go home. He said, but then you'd find about 30 or 40 mad dogs 
in and out of the bar, going here, going there, getting in fights, going to jail, won't settle for sitting at the bar, wallowing in their crap because they know there's more to find in alcohol, and won't settle for sitting at the tables in the middle of the room, drink till they feel good, because that's just where the night begins for a mad dog, and they want it all, and they're going for the gusto, doing it to the max, box to the drop, terms that I know in the bottom of my heart. I do not relate to time of sort of maybe or a little of anything. He says, now take those hundred people, put them back in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and you'll find they settle for about the same thing they did when they were drinking. And I have to say to you this tonight, I will not settle for sitting in these rooms, wallowing in my big book, crying in my stuff, saying that she left me, and the world's to blame, and they made me the way I am, because I know there's more to find in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I will not settle for coming in these rooms and sitting at the tables just long enough to where I feel better and then go home and start to choke on your own gratitude because you aren't giving it away. I was a mad dog then. I'm a mad dog now. I want it all. Go for it. Get free. Don't let anybody tell you you can't because all they're saying is God isn't everything. And I'll leave you with this. God is either everything or he's nothing. He either is or he isn't. What is my choice to do? Thank you for asking me. Thank you.